Hey, welcome to Cornerstone Ministries Young Adult Podcast. We hope this serves as a resource for you as you seek, find, and grow in your walk with Jesus. Tune in for sermon audios from our young adult services and other original content. If you already have a home church, we're glad this can be another tool for you, but if not, we hope that you would check us out online at cornerstonelive.net or join us in person. Cornerstone is in Murraysville, PA, and services are Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m. Our young adult ministry gathers every other Tuesday at 7 p.m. Now let's dive into our Seven Churches series in Revelation. I was looking, as much as I love uh, the church in Philadelphia, there was something that was really has really just been drawing me uh, for the church of Laodicea. I've always really been challenged by what John writes to the church in Laodicea, so I changed up the order a little bit because I really wanted to dig into this with you guys, but to kind of refocus us back in. Whenever we're going through series like this that are kind of exegetical, I like to always start with some of the backgrounds just to kind of get us focused back in on kind of what the context of this is so we can see in a bigger picture where the Lord wants us to go with it, what he wants us to get out of it. So I want you to think about this for a second, that as John's writing this. I want you to think about the culmination of his life. If you look at John's gospel, and this is what I love about the gospels, is all of them have a completely different focal point. They're coming from a different perspective. But Matthew is Jewish. His target audience for his gospel is Jews. So he starts the gospel out with what? The lineage of Jesus, because Jewish people would care about that. Mark was not Jewish. He was specifically writing to Romans, and he was trying to entertain He was trying to capture his Roman audience. So if you actually look at the Gospel of Mark, if you guys are ever reading your Bibles and you see how it's got these little like section breaks and sometimes it'll give you titles and say, okay, well, this part's about this and this part's about this. But if you look at the Gospel of Mark, he changes topics. I think the largest section in the Gospel of Mark is only 11 verses. He's constantly switching topics to keep his his readers invested. Um, And then the Gospel of Luke is about the outcasts and the outsiders, which I love. But here's what's so cool about the Gospel of John, is he's writing this basically as an old man, reflecting back on this beautiful time of his life where he was walking with his friend and Savior. And then on top of that, he's given this vision from God, which depicts God as this all-powerful being. And and you look at how John writes Revelation. And later on in the chapter, or later on in the book, he's talking about the the new heaven and the new earth, that the glory of God is going to replace the sun. So he's got these two completely different perspectives of God, this close, intimate relationship of walking with him, and then this returning king, this all-powerful returning king. So you have these two mindsets colliding. So as he's writing this, I can only imagine the mindset he has that as he's sitting down, he's receiving these words from the Lord. He's receiving these visions from God and he's kind of bringing all of his experience together. He's bringing all these experiences together as he's writing this out. And I just want you to process that because he writes, he as God's giving him the words, it's not like he's paraphrasing here, like, ooh, God, that's kind of tough. Let me, you know, maybe we should tweak this a little bit. He's not giving him alterations. He's not giving him edits here because he's completely invested into who God is, into his message, into what he's called him to do. And the reason I mention that is because Laodicea in particular has such a strong pull. 
And I want to dig into that for a second, but just to kind of recenter us on this, remember, this is, Revelation is written around 95 AD. It's at the end of John's life. Uh, the author, also the author of the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And remember, this is just completely interwoven with prophecy. It is the culmination of the story. It is the resolution, everything coming to conclusion. Now, like I said, Laodicea is the second to last, or is the last church, because remember, this would have been sent through the, the order of the churches as they show up in Revelation 2 and 3, is the order the letter would have been sent. But I want to look at Laodicea. A little bit of background here. Laodicea was the wealthiest and most important commercial center in the area. And it's kind of, it's three primary uh, imports, so to speak. And we can throw up that slide on Laodicea. But the three like primary imports on Laodicea were banking, wool, and medicine. And that becomes crucial as we dig into this text. Okay, so hang on to that, tuck that away for a second. But the issue was, is there wasn't enough of a local water supply. So they actually built this underground aqueduct system. Okay, they got, they got really fancy with it. But I want to look at this together. Let's dig into this. Revelation 3, starting at verse 14. You guys can follow along on the screen here. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now remember, we mentioned this before, that for each of these seven letters to these seven churches, the introduction is a little bit different, but it's unique for each of these churches for, for a reason. So verse 15, it says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." So there's a lot going on there, and I want to dig into this a little bit, but I actually, I want to work backwards. I want to work backwards. So at the end of each of these letters to these different churches, it's always ended the same way. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, as God is kind of challenging, correcting these different churches, he wants everybody to pay attention to this. This isn't just for the leaders. This isn't just for certain groups of people. I need all of you to hear this. This is important. But like I said, I want to keep working backwards here. Verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, this is kind of a, a subtle subpoint here. But one of the themes of Revelation, I've mentioned this before, but one of the themes of Revelation is conquering through sacrifice. And I want you to look at how he says this. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Well, wait a second. Jesus has not physically returned yet. So what's he referencing? 
He's referencing the conquering of defeating sin and death through his sacrifice. After defeating sin and death, what happens? He ascends to heaven and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. So you conquer through your sacrifice. So he gives this charge to say, the one who conquers, the one who's willing to lay down their life for me, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. So the path to get to that glory, the path to get to that moment when you're in perfect harmony, perfect unity with the Father is a difficult one. It is a difficult one. Now let's keep going back again. Verse 20. We're continuing to peel this back. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And what Jesus is expressing through this is an intimacy of the relationship. That if you're going to sacrifice for me, if you're going to conquer through sacrifice, through suffering, If you want to partake in the kingdom of God, there needs to be some intimacy there. And as we dig into this, verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Why is he saying all this? Why is Jesus digging into Laodicea to say, listen, I need you to be zealous. I need you to be passionate. I need you to be excited about this. And I need you to repent. I need you to return from the world. I need you to be zealous after me. And for me to do that, I'm going to have to correct you. I'm going to have to make this uncomfortable at times. But I need to do that because we have to have a personal relationship. There needs to be an intimacy between us. Because as we go through this difficult journey, the road to get to eternal glory with me is a difficult one. The reason he digs into this, the problem with Laodicea, is so interesting. I love this. The way that Jesus weaves in their their personal situations. Again, we're going to back this up. Verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Why does he pick those three examples? Well, what the three primary exports of Laodicea that made it the wealthiest city were banking, wool, and medicine. So he uses these three examples to say, listen, I know that you have all these things at your disposal. I know that you have all these resources, but I don't think you realize how far, are, how far off you are from me. And this is kind of where I want us to go with this this evening and and where I want us to spend a majority of our time. And there's a reason that I prayed what I did before we went to worship. One of the things that is probably, it's probably the most frustrating for me is indifference and complacency. And usually that kind of rears its head most of the time, a lot of the time, when people are just being fake. And guys, I would much rather you flip me off one day and then hug me the next than be fake with me. And one of the most frustrating things for me as I'm trying to talk with people, as I'm trying to get to know them, Um, Because as I was going through my undergraduate degree and I was thinking about whether or not I should do a a master's degree, I was actually talking with a young adult the other day that's kind of wrestling with that. 
question of, okay, well, what's next? You know, I'm working on my undergraduate degree, but I'm not sure what's next. So should I go for a master's or, you know, what's this going to look like? So we're kind of processing that and talking through it. But as I was making that transition from undergraduate degree to my master's degree, I was asking professors, what should I go study? Because I know I want to go into ministry, but if you're going into seminary, there's like 10 different cognates that you can pick from. Andrew, am I right? There's like 50 different cognates where you can get your master's divinity in this, but then you can have this focus and this focus and this focus. You can pick up four different minors, you know, all these different factors. If you can cheat the system enough, you take some extra credits, you get an extra minor, which, listen, it's beneficial for your knowledge, but minors mean absolutely nothing on your resume, just so you know. But it is beneficial for, for your own knowledge, Andrew, I'm just saying. Andrew and I were talking about master's classes the other day. But as I was going into my master's degree, I asked my professors, what should I take? And I said, you should do pastoral counseling because so much of ministry is counseling. But one of the most infuriating things is when you have the title of pastor in front of your name, you become a magnet for fake. Because there are these unspoken expectations of, well, you know me, you know my family, you know, you know how long I've been going to this church. And then as I sit with people and I talk with them, it's like pulling teeth. It's, it's so infuriating. Jeremy, is that too soon? Jeremy was at the dentist right before that. It's like pulling teeth. But it's so infuriating to try and sit and talk with someone. And, and this is not a, I'm just using, pulling out a random example. This has not happened. Uh, this has not happened here. Not yet, but hopefully it will as you guys get more comfortable with me. But it's infuriating. I've had young men come and say, hey, can I talk to you about something? Like, yeah, Sure. And they're kind of hemming and hauling and just like super uncomfortable. And it's like, you're looking at porn, right? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, 98% of guys by 18 are looking at porn. Why are you so shocked? Why would I be shocked by this? Do you think that I have this assumption that you're perfect? Are you assuming that I think you have it all figured out? That you've got life on lock at 20? Guys, I'm 31 and I still feel like I'm making it up as I go. But this concept of we have to be fake about where we're at in our relationship with Jesus because here's what happens. Kind of went off on a tangent there. We went down a rabbit trail. Hopefully we killed the rabbit. It's like, that's, that's the rule. If you go down a rabbit trail, you at least got to kill the rabbit. Because the reason I want to talk about that is because this indifference and complacency that creeps in because of expectations and comparison, whatever it might be, this tendency to not be transparent about where you're at, how things are going. What happens is we get comfortable within our circumstances. So for some of you who have been in this church for over a decade, you've never really experience what it looks like to walk into a church where you feel like absolutely nobody loves Jesus. And it's all just out of habit. Or some of you have gone to a conference or you've gone to an event or you come back from vertical camp if you graduated recently or you come back from some type of retreat of some kind and you think, man, why can't that atmosphere be replicated you know, in my day to day life. Why can't I have that? Why can't I, you know, why can't we always be worshiping with our eyes closed and our hands up? Why can't we always be super hype and, and clapping at the upbeat songs? And why can't it always be cry night? Every single week. 
And what's so infuriating about that mindset is because mainly because nobody's willing to take the first step. We're all looking at each other like, who's going to be the first one to be vulnerable? <gasps> Not me. And Jesus is infuriating by, infuriated by this concept. Verse 15, I know your works, you are neither hot, neither cold nor hot. And what he's playing on here is Hierapolis was to the north of Laodicea. And it had healthy hot springs. And then Colossae was six miles to the south. And had clean, cold springs. And you had these two completely different cities that they built these aqueduct systems for. And here's what's so interesting about this. And I've heard pastors preach on this passage. And you've got this hot, you are neither hot nor cold. And if you think about hot water, it can be therapeutic. It helps you stay hydrated. It eases congestion. It can improve digestion. It relieves stress. The big trend right now is doing ice baths to like improve uh, uh, circulation. It helps your metabolism, doing cold showers in the morning or something. I'll be honest, I tried it one time. I, I got my arm in. That was it. And I gave up. I was like... Listen, this might be healthy for some people. I know that it's healthy for everybody. If you do ice baths or cold showers, don't get on me. I get it's healthy for everybody. I don't have the willpower, okay? Pray for me in that. But we look at, I've heard pastors preach on this passage and talk about hot or cold. And is your faith going to be therapeutic to people? Is your faith going to be healing for people? Or is your faith going to be refreshing? But actually, the majority of scholars agree that the reason, the, the reason that this is worded the way it is, is not because cold and hot are two different types of faith. So you got to pick one, don't be lukewarm. But the implication of this passage is actually much more shocking. And that the two comparisons aren't two different types of faith, but it's those who are passionately pursuing Jesus and those who are closed off from him. And when I first heard that interpretation, it had me taken aback because, wait, wait a second. You're telling me God would rather have you strongly opposed to him than simply on the fence? Yes. 2 Timothy 3, 2 through 5. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Probably the, the best example I have of this, I remember multiple conversations I had with a friend of mine where I was trying to, I was kind of pulling on him and trying to get him to make a decision for Jesus. And one day I specifically asked him, like, hey man, are you going to make a decision or what? And he kind of just looks back at me and said, oh, God and I are good. I totally believe in God. I love God. And the more we got into this conversation, he, could, he had a lot to say about God, but he never would talk about Jesus. He would never talk about Jesus. It was always God this, God that. Because God isn't that complicated. Let's be honest, we're experiencing life where everybody has a God. We get to kind of just make it up as we go. We can pick or choose what our God is. 
But Jesus is very clear cut. You can't change who he is. You can't change what he says. You can't change what he expects of us. But look at how strongly his response is to this. Verse 16. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. The Greek word there for spit is emeo, and it actually means to vomit. This isn't like, oh, let me try this out. Oh, no, not so much. It was probably, it's probably the one of the most, I wouldn't say it's the most embarrassing video of me, but for some reason, my wife talked me into trying feta. And if you love feta, what's wrong with you? I just, I'm going to pray for your salvation more. I don't understand it in any way, shape, or form. And I, I, I'll be honest, I do. I have the diet of a toddler. Um, chicken nuggets, pizza, pasta, that's, and I'm set. Cereal, really, but not like Cheerios. It needs to be like Fruit Loops, Captain Crunch. It has to be really sugary cereal. Uh, anyways, but we're sitting in this diner, and my wife got me to try this tiny little bit of feta, and I did not get it past my teeth. I, like, I barely got it on the tip of my tongue, and my... And, and I spit it back onto the plate. And she got it on video. She might still have it. Um, don't go seek her out for that. It's, it's not the best video at all. That's not what this is. This isn't what, what Jesus is saying in this process. He's not saying, listen, you're lukewarm. So this is something that isn't appealing to me. The, the language that's used here is saying, I can't stomach you. If you are going to misrepresent me, if you're going to misrepresent me, if you're going to ride the fence, if you're going to become indifferent, if you're going to become complacent, if you're going to claim church and Bible study and worship but not zealously love me, I can't stomach you. And I vomit you out. Is a literal translation of that Greek word emeo. Why we've watered it down to say, I spit you out, I have no idea. So when you look at the culmination of this passage, he's saying, listen, I've conquered and now sit at the right hand of my father, and that's what I've called you to. But if you're going to ride the fence, you're not going to make it. You are not going to be able to survive the difficulties that this life brings upon you if you are not zealously, passionately following after me. And that only comes from an intimate personal relationship. I am knocking at the door of your heart. Allow me to come in, create that intimate relationship with me so that as life comes, you are going to conquer through sacrifice just as I conquered through sacrifice. And just as I now sit at the right hand of my father, you are going to sit at our right hand. And you become co-inheritors of the kingdom of God. We become future citizens of the new heaven and new earth where the glory of God replaces the sun. And Jesus speaks with such severity. And what I love about this is John's writing this passage saying, I know that Jesus. I have that intimate relationship with that Jesus. And even though martyrdom is not what God had for me, I've watched my brothers and my friends be crucified and beheaded and boiled. And I know what he's talking about when he says, you have to conquer as I have conquered. 
And I can only imagine the, the, the passion and the conviction, the, the emotion that is poured over this passage as John is receiving this from God and he's writing it, sending it out from afar. And you think about some other passages in Scripture. Paul specifically, I plead with you, I implore you, I beg you. See, we have this beautiful benefit, and I, and I hope and pray we don't come, become indifferent to this, complacent to this, that we can sit in this room, we can open up the word of God together, and we can plead with one another that I'm able to look you in the eye and say, I beg you to become zealous. And John has to do it from afar, in isolation. as he's sitting on this island in Patmos writing this letter saying, I just hope some of them get this. I hope some of them realize how badly they need to pursue this. But I do hope, I do pray that if you are riding the fence, this does strike a little bit of fear into you. That this does light a little bit of a fire under you. That this fake, indifferent, complacent Christianity you're living, you might be fooling us. But the Father says, I can't tolerate you in my system. And here's the part that really hit me. You realize if he's saying I vomit you out, It implies he's tried. I I want you a part of me, but I can't do it. I want you to be one with me, but you're not in it, so I have to get you out of my system. I want you all in in this. I want you so badly to, to zealously turn. Those whom I love, all of us, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Please, get off the fence. Do not become lukewarm. But the part that's so difficult about this, because I I genuinely do, I, I love you guys, and I'm so glad that you're here. And any parent I talk to, I tell them the exact same thing. I firmly believe the single most difficult thing about being a parent is putting your head on the pillow at night and having absolutely no control over the eternal fate of your child. I can pray for Elliot. I can, I can teach Addie different things. I can try and bring Oliver to church. But I can't control if they make a personal decision or not. I can't make it for them. And what's so difficult about this is as much as I can try and plead with you, I can't do it for you. And this is something Paul expressed. He says, like, if I, if I could give you some faith, I would do it, but I can't. You have to make a decision whether or not you're going to get off the fence, whether or not you're going to decide to zealously pursue the Lord and turn from your sin. And that is a daily process, a daily occurrence. But let's pray together. Let's plead with the Lord that if we are on the fence, that our hearts would become softened and that he would continue to draw us to himself. Father, I praise you. I thank you so much for your word. And it can be difficult sometimes. It can give us some gut punches. 
And you love us. You ferociously love us and desperately want a personal relationship with us. But Lord, if we're going to be indifferent, if we're going to be complacent, if we're going to become lukewarm, we cannot be one with you. We cannot be one with you. And you are standing at the door. You are knocking at the door saying, please, I want to come into your life. I want to have an intimate, personal relationship with you. Because I want to be with you as you walk through the difficulties of this life. I want to be with you as you conquer through sacrificing yourself. And I will be the first one to greet you as you enter into eternity with me. He desires that relationship with each and every one of us. But it comes down to our own decision. It comes down to the whether or not we decide to to turn, to repent, passionately pursue you with everything that we have. So we thank you. Would you help us to trust you? We praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this message. For more information on the Young Adult Ministry, follow us on Instagram, or you can email youngadults at cornerstonelive.net.